following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been looking at the Psalms this summer, walking through and getting a variety and picture of this songbook of the church throughout all of the ages of the church. And today we come to Psalm 73. It's a psalm that is really dealing with the profound topic of the sufficiency of God and how it relates to our hearts. Of the battle for our hearts, the the fact that in life, be it a Christian battle or just a battle in general, we battle for what is it that we believe? Do we trust the Lord? Is God enough for us? Is what he provides for us enough to deeply satisfy us in all the different areas of our lives? We want God to be enough. We want that to be true. But how we arrive there is a challenge. The place of genuine satisfaction with God. Most of us are familiar with a couple of verses from Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Joshua Harris says that this is the anthem of the soul that is satisfied in God. And we hear it and we read it. And at least for many, the first impression is this. The psalmist makes it sound so easy. The psalmist seems to be out of touch, that there are so many things in this life which we desire besides God, that we're not fully satisfied because we have determined that our happiness is God plus something else. There are other things that we have determined are non-negotiable, and that if God really does love us and we're really going to be satisfied, we have to have him, but we want all this other stuff too. And we read verses 25 and 26, and we wonder where Asaph, this guy who wrote the psalm, is from. We look at him and we think, he's just another biblical character who I can't relate with. We want to look at him and go, what cloud are you floating around on that allows you to throw out platitudes like that when I'm down here in the slog of it and I'm trying to figure things out? I'm just a mere mortal, and I can't seem to relate to things like you can. And we read, and if you only read these two verses of Psalm 73, then you miss the whole psalm. You miss the import. You miss what Asaph was trying to communicate. Because what Asaph was trying to communicate was there's a battle. And it's a battle for your heart. And there are moments within the Christian life that you feel like you're about to fall over the edge and just throw up your hands and give in. So this morning we're going to look at some of these things together. And the first thing is just what I've said. The Christian life is a battle for your hearts. The Christian life is a battle for your hearts. The psalmist starts off with a declaration of faith, a statement of truth. He says, truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart, he's making a declaration of what he believes. He knows this to be true cognitively. He understands it, or at least he states 
the true nature and character of God. He understands or at least states uh, the true nature of how this holy God relates uh, to humanity. That he's a man who knows truth. And he's also a godly person. We don't know a lot about Asaph, but at least in verse 13 we find out that he says this, I'm a person who's kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. He's someone who has lived an exemplary Christian life. He's someone who you would look at and say, this is a righteous person. This is a righteous man. This is a good man. That he is a religious person. He serves God and so on. We also learn about the psalmist. That he's someone who has experienced difficulty in his life. In verse 14. All day long I've been plagued. And I've been punished every morning. We're not sure what that is. It could be sickness in his life. It could be there's trouble in his family. It could be that there's economic issues going on with him. That there could be some type of terrible disappointment that he has. But I think the best thing about that verse is it doesn't tell us exactly what it is. That there's a vagueness to it that we can relate to. That we can say, I get it. You're wrestling with something. That here's a man who genuinely loves the Lord. He knows the truth. He's lived a life based off of that truth. He's experiencing now some difficulty within his life to the point that now he is at, in verse 2, a place where he's about to slip and fall over the edge. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped away. The truth was becoming less and less real in his life. It wasn't becoming less and less true. It was becoming less and less real in his life. He was losing sight of God and his goodness. He was losing his heart. But what's the reason? There's a battle that's going on, and the battle is for your heart, for the Christian heart. What's the reason? What is it that leads you to a place, then, of losing heart? Well, the psalmist gives us the reason, and it's the danger of envy. He says, I had become envious, verse 3. I was envious. And so the greatest danger, at least in this psalm, the greatest danger to the Christian heart The greatest danger to your own heart is the danger of envy. Jonathan Edwards said that envy may be defined to be a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with your own. Envy wants somebody else's life. Envy is a deep dissatisfaction with your own life. Instead of rejoicing, you weep because you don't have. You resent Envy is being unhappy with other people's happiness and happy with their unhappiness. Envy hides itself. Unlike, and so much more so than other sins, no one sees envy in themselves. And we are incredibly hesitant to ever admit it openly to others that we might struggle with it. It's a matter of the heart that's dark and that does more than just grieve us It embitters us. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, envy is a poison and it's toxic. 
And when it gets into the human heart, it sucks out the very joy of life. It poisons your ability to enjoy anything that you have. You see, if you were to understand what you envy, then you begin to understand your heart a little bit more. That you need to take an inventory. And the beauty of this psalm and the beauty of Scripture is that it's so incredibly real. It's incredibly human. That Asaph was not embarrassed to write down on parchment what he was envious of. And he just took an inventory of his heart. He basically looked at his heart. He goes, okay, what's going on? Why am I about to lose it? Why am I about to slip over the edge here? And he said, oh, I'm envious. I'm envious of the arrogant. I'm envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pains until death. Their life just seems so easy and mine seems so hard. Their bodies are fat and sleek. What a great definition of beauty. I love that definition, by the way. I think we should be more biblical in our view of life. Some of you are very beautiful uh, out there. I'm working he said their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes are swollen out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. And loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against heaven. And their tongues strut through the earth. And almost as a P.S., and God, you don't do anything about it. They yell at heaven and get away with it. They deny you and yet they prosper. Therefore, his people, godly people, turn back to them. They're attractive to Christians. They're attractive to godly people. People flock to them. They're winsome in who they are. And no one finds fault in them. There's a delusional aspect to people who are gathered around them. And they say, how can God know? And is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. I love Asaph's honesty. Because if you are honest today, you know that you felt that way at some level about somebody else. That we look around And we see envy begin to take root. In his estimation, the wicked are living the high life. They are just getting it done and loving life. And he's the one who's suffering. And he really comes to a point, to a crisis point. And he says, how can this be? This isn't right. We don't know what to do, folks, when we encounter happy pagans. We don't know what to do with them. We're much more comfortable, although you would probably never admit it. We're more comfortable when pagans are suffering at some level under the weight of their rebellion. And we're flourishing under the weight of our reward for obedience. The world seems right to us somehow when that's happening. But how could this be? How could it be that they seem to be fat and happy? There's no way that they can truly be happy. That's what we have to say. We rationalize it out. It has to be a veneer of happiness. It can't be real. 
And so we would get into a conversation with them and say something like this, I I know that you have the veneer of happiness within uh, your life, but deep down inside, it's not true. It's not true, is it? Well, you know, I I, I love my life. It's a great life. No, you're not. You couldn't be. Deep down inside, way down, if you dig just a little deeper down in there, you really aren't happy with your life. You hate it. There's something terribly wrong deep down underneath there, isn't there? No, actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I, I like my life. It, it's a good life. No, it's not. Really, when you go to sleep at night, when you put your head on your pillow, There's a deep sense of dissatisfaction and loss, isn't there? That you're not happy and content and satisfied. No, I kind of like my nights. I got a 72-inch plasma. I got direct TV. My sports teams are doing good. My marriage is going great. The kids are doing well. Had a big dinner tonight. I kind of like my life. But you, Mr. Christian, on the other hand, You don't seem to be all that happy and content in your life. I'm happy. I love Jesus and the joy of Christ pervades me. Wouldn't you like to come to church and accept Jesus like I have and be as happy as I am? No, I'm I'm good. I'm, I'm pretty good. We don't know what to do with a happy pagan. We don't know what to do with a person who has rejected the things that we hold to be true and dear, and yet they seem to get along just fine. That when we engage them in our lives and we see that our families hold certain values and in our marriages we've held certain values of how we're going to raise our children and to raise them in the love and the admonition of the Lord. And then we get together with our friends who have rejected any semblance of a Christian home and allow their children to seemingly do whatever it is that they want to do. And we look, and you're there, and you've made sacrifices, and you're talking to your friend, and she looks at you and goes, I can't hang out too long. I've got a tennis lesson, and I've got to go see Spend for a massage. But it's good that you're staying home with your kids and raising them and doing this whole catechism thing and whatever all that stuff is. And then you get together with that family, and you're looking around, and it's your kids who seem demon-possessed, and their heads are spinning, and not theirs. And you get together with a friend and you've been working hard in your business and you've had an integrity within your business, but yet you're not getting the promotions, you're not getting the sales, you're not getting all the things. And yet this person who has outright rejected God is a jerk and who cuts every corner and breaks every trust seems to be getting ahead in life. See, folks, this is a real issue. You may not ever have that conversation that I had with a happy pagan But oh, you want to. We can't believe deep down inside that they're getting ahead and we're not. And we're at a point and you come to a point where you're not happy at all, where it hasn't been worth it and you're on the verge of losing heart. If you're beginning to feel right now some of this, then you're beginning to feel what Asaph was feeling. Asaph was done He lived in a world that didn't make sense to him. 
He lived in a world and an understanding that sometimes following God is actually harder than not following Him. You have to ask yourself this. Is there a place of envy within your heart? I can't answer that for you, and I'm not going to assume it upon you. But do an inventory and ask yourself, what is it that you daydream about? What is it that you wish would happen to somebody else? What's going on deep down inside? Are you finding a resentment towards the life that you have in Christ? You see, Asaph is not turning from his faith, but he's getting tired within it. He's growing weary within his faith in God. He's losing heart. Envy leads him to such a low point where he begins to question everything in verse 13. All in vain. It's all vanity. Everything that I've ever done, everything that I've ever believed, that I've kept my heart clean, that I've washed my hands in innocence, all of this, he is at a tipping point. He is at a crisis point for his envy is consuming him. And so if you're in that same place or if you've got just vestiges of it, what's the remedy to envy? What's the biblical remedy to when we come to that place and all of us at some way or another have been there? We've all looked up to heaven and gone, really? Really? This is what I get for all that I've given you. And they get that. It doesn't seem worth it. Asaph would say, and the Lord would say, find a different vantage point. Look at life from a different place. You all look different when I stand over here. You look different when you stand over here. It's different if I was to go down on to the floor. The harbor looks different when you're on the lighthouse or when you're on a boat. The psalmist is saying you have to change your vantage point. And the place that you go to find this new vantage point, he says in verse 16 and 17, is into the very presence of God himself. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed as to me a wearisome task. Asaph was tired. He may have put on a good veneer. I don't know. You might have had Asaph over for dinner with his family and everything would have been, so how are you? Well, you would have given the stand, he would have given the standard, I'm good, you? But deep down, Asaph was exhausted. He said, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. The psalmist's understanding of things begins to shift and change by stepping into the presence of the Almighty God. Into the presence of God, the Holy One, the Awesome One, the One who created all things and rules all things. The psalmist realized he had a limited perspective on things. And once he walks into the sanctuary, his perspective exploded. It changed. We have some friends who were incredibly great, generous, and have allowed us to use their mountain house on a couple of occasions. And it's a beautiful home. It's at the top of a mountain. And so as you pull up to the house... It's nothing fancy. It's just a beautiful, seemingly one-story house. And you walk in through the seemingly normal front door and walk into a living room, and you're greeted with a wall of windows 
that looks out from 4,600 feet upon Lake Glenville and upon all the beauty of the valley and over to Whiteside. And the thunderstorms would move in through the valley in the evening when the sun sets. And all of a sudden, your perspective is totally changed because you went through the door. God is saying, if you want to fully understand this world, you have to change your perspective. You have to walk through into his sanctuary, into his relationship. And what happens when we walk in and we say, God, I want to see things as you see things. The answer is somewhat like this. Let me pull back the drapes on eternity for you. Let me show you that you've been looking too small. That you've been thinking about only the years here. For in verse 18, the psalmist says, Truly you set them, that is the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall into utter ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Mankind with all his stuff is like a bad dream that disappears in the morning. It's like a mist that dissipates when God steps into the room and all his brilliance and all of his light. The psalmist had his eyes intently fixed on the wicked, but now they have moved to a focus on God and his perspective. And he saw their end. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. His heart has shifted and is now looking ahead to the end. He's understanding the present by looking to the future. He's allowing eternity and ultimate things to inform the present situation. Too often we stay fixed firmly only in the present. But he's saying this, we have to shift. We have to shift. And when we shift, what he sees is this. I'm not envious of the wicked anymore. My heart is broken for them. Because I know where they go, not because of their wealth, not because of their prosperity, but because they've rejected God. And I would never trade Everything that they have in this life for a condemnation before the king one day. Because standing with God is so much better than everything that they have in this world and in this life. And all of a sudden, verses 25 and 26 sound different now. Instead of being platitudes that we can't relate to, as Asaph floats along on his little cloud... Now we hear from a heart that says, whom have I in heaven but you? And God, because I've seen their end, because I've seen the end of the world, because I've seen and read the last chapter, because of this, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh will fail. They have failed. They're currently failing and they're going to fail me again. But my heart and my flesh will fail. But God, you're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It changes from a platitude to a desperation. It changes from a man who looked around and almost in repentance turned and said, God, I'm sorry that I wanted all of those other things and didn't want you. I want you. And if it means suffering in this life, as long as I get you, for you are my heart and you are my portion and you are my strong tower. So how do you get there? 
Asaph was at least willing to ask ultimate questions. Tim Keller puts it this way. Now let me tell you something, he says. Asking ultimate questions and this question for Asaph, that's the nail in the coffin of your anger against God if you will finally ask that question. What he's asking is, what do I really, really want? Why am I mad at God? The answer always is because I want something more than I want God. Let me put it again. Why are you mad at God? Always because there's something I want more than God. Think about that. Think about the ramifications of that. Think of the logic of that. Think of the stupidity of that. That's what happens to him. He suddenly gets it. I think part of my role and a very large part of my role within the life of the church is to encourage you and to help you ask better questions. To ask ultimate questions. If you're wrestling with envy, ask better questions. Not just, okay, I need to repent of envy, but go deeper down and say, what is it that's driving my envy? Why am I mad at God that they're getting ahead and I'm not getting ahead? To be honest in the middle of it. And when we begin to ask those questions, how then do we find satisfaction in God? And I'm just going to give you these more as highlight than fully explain. But we find this satisfaction, we appropriate this truth into our life by admitting that we, that you and I are weak and envious. We just have to begin there. This is Asaph, by the way, a writer of scripture. There's an attitude, a prideful attitude that says, well, I can't, resist, I can't relate to Asaph. I've never struggled like that, really. You've never struggled with any question profoundly in your life of these things. To wrestle with, with these things is human. It's refreshing, to be honest. So the first thing is this. Admit that you're weak. Admit that you have envy in your life and start there. The second would be this. Stop thinking about them and start looking at him. I don't know what the them is for you. It could be anything other than God that distracts you. But stop focusing on that. Stop focusing on everything that goes on. I'm a big fan of sports. But I'll tell you, one of the most frustrating evenings of my entire year is the NBA draft. When young men who can just, because they're tall and they can throw a basketball into a basket, sign guaranteed contracts for $50 million. And 90% of them will be bankrupt by the end of their playing careers. And I get angry and think, God, you could throw a few mil my way. I promise I won't do that. I'll tithe it. I'll give most of it away. Heck, I'll go 90, 10 backwards. I'll tithe 90. I'll live on 10. Just test me. I'm ready for it, God. But I get envious. I get frustrated that it's hard to pay for two colleges and school and cars and people. It's hard. The psalmist says, stop thinking about them. And start considering God more often. Consider the character and the nature of who God is. Measure your life by eternity, not by this world. 
Measure your life by eternity, not this world. It's easy to see the short-sightedness when you consider a high schooler. I didn't get to go to prom. I didn't make it on the football team. I didn't get an A, I got a B. And we look at them and go, oh, so short-sighted. I look back and think, gosh, I wish I hadn't gone to prom. And children, you should strive for A's, but I'm not where I am because I made straight A's in life. And so I didn't have to wreck my life. But we look back on high school and we say, that's so short-sighted. But we're the same way. We look at this life and we wonder why we're not getting ahead. The whole eternity thing is a lost art for us. So what we need to start doing is measure your life by eternity. Start to discern the end of the wicked. They are living for the things of this world, which is utter foolishness. It should break your heart, not cause you to be envious. It should break your heart to think that the person with the most toys wins in the end. And at the end of the day, that person is going to awake to a judgment that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy. And I'm envious of them. Instead of being brokenhearted for them. Some of you who are here this morning and you're not a Christian. I want you to hear this. The Lord is putting a shot across your bow. Not to scare you but to awaken you. To say that there's more to this life than living and dying. That there is an eternity. That is presented and offered to you in Christ. And I'm inviting you to ask large questions today. Consider the destiny of the wicked. But also consider the destiny of the believer. For you, the believer, consider what you've been rescued from. That God says, those who are opposed to me are like a phantom. They're like a vapor. They're like a mist that disappears. He says, that would be you as well if it wasn't for my incredible grace and mercy in your life through my son, Jesus Christ. But I've given you now an eternity where you will stand and be firmly planted and you will experience joy for the rest of eternity. Recognize what God has done for you and let it inform your present. And then finally this, and we'll end. Remember who holds you and guides you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. This isn't a presidential nominee who we're talking about. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the creator of all things who says this. In the end, folks, I win. I've already won. Just everyone doesn't recognize it yet, but one day they will recognize it. And this person who has won this Christ to this king, he's the one who holds your right hand. And he says to you, you may be slipping right now, but I have you. And I promise I will never let go of you. That nothing can separate you from my love. Not life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present. Anything, nothing can separate you. Not even your weakness. Not even your doubt. So as one pastor said one time, and I love it. We'll end here. If you're having some doubts this morning, doubt your doubts. Don't doubt God.
When did our doubts become the preeminent thing for us to gauge everything else by? But doubt our doubts and come back and, re- and search the scriptures and find this God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your honesty in your word. Thank you that you allow us to be honest. That you allow us to wrestle with you. And I pray, like Asaph, that we would be very real and candid and open about these things in our own lives. And we would come then to your sanctuary, come into your presence, and we would, we would see you. And you would pull back the veil a bit on eternity. Father, we look forward to the day that we'll no longer have to have faith, but it'll be sight. But until then, would you strengthen our faith? Would you strengthen our resolve? And would we, this church, be a safe place for people to come and to wrestle and struggle? And would we always point them to this King, to Christ himself? To him be glory and dominion now and forever. Amen.